You know, there's no greater privilege than to witness the birth of a child. It is truly a miracle when you think about it. Two microorganisms come together and form a human being. What a miracle it is. And if you've witnessed the birth of a child, if you have been blessed with that experience, it is truly breathtaking. It is a miracle, a wonder of all miracles. But of all time, as long as we can know, there is no greater birth, none more significant than the Lord Jesus Christ. So significant is this birth that it changed time. Anno Domini, in the year of our Lord. Anno Domini, we live in the year of our Lord, 2022. 2,022 years since the Lord Jesus was born. And whether people know it or not, they are proclaiming the Lord's death every time they write out the date and put the year 2022. This passage this morning is about the birth of Jesus Christ. It is written by Dr. Luke. He is a historian, but he is also a theologian. So when you read Luke, you can't help but look at the historical aspects of what he's writing, but also the theological aspects of what he's writing. The why and the purpose behind what he is writing. He wrote his gospel to Theophilus and to all of us so that we might know what we believe is true. So he was very historical, but he was also very, very theological. Well, let's pray for this passage this morning, that the Lord would open our eyes and our ears. Father in heaven, we do thank you for this Christmas morn that reminds us of the birth of our Savior 2,022 years ago this day. And so we give praise and adoration to you. We pray for your blessing upon the reading of this word and upon our study in it together. We pray that it would come to life within us, that it would raise us up, that it would encourage us to herald with the angels the good news to this world. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as I said, Luke is both historical and He is theological. Whether we want to realize this or not, we live within God's cosmos, which is made up of two realms. Two realms. It might sound like I'm speaking about Lord of the Rings. These two realms, the physical realm and the spiritual realm. And whether we want to believe it or not, they do exist. The physical realm being that which we can see, that which we can smell and touch and taste. And then there's the spiritual realm, that of the unseen. But this realm is still very, very true. And I think what Luke is trying to get through to us this morning through this narrative of the birth of Jesus Christ is to help you to see that there is a lot going on behind the curtain. We need to see both of these realms this Christmas morn. 
Like I said, the physical realm is what we can see. But it can be deceiving. It it can keep us from getting the whole picture of God's reality, both the physical and the spiritual. It's real, the physical realm. We see it. But it's incomplete. It's only half of the truth, if you will. It contains truth, yes, but it doesn't recognize absolute truth. It rejects it. It rejects God's truth. Absolute truth can only be seen by those who by faith have entered the kingdom of heaven. Only they can see it. Only they have eyes to see and ears to hear what the Lord says. This is the spiritual realm. Paul puts it this way in Ephesians, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers and against authorities, cosmic powers over this present darkness, spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. As I spoke during this Advent series at the very beginning, I talked about the story of the offspring from Genesis 3.15 and that enmity that is placed between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. A warfare is going on. And this warfare is going on even during this first Christmas. And to this day, until the day that Jesus comes again. Why am I saying this? Why am I getting into the spiritual realm and the physical realm? Because I believe this opens up the bud of this narrative and makes it come to full flower. This invisible spiritual world exists. Let me give you just an example from Scripture. You know the prophet Elisha, not Elijah, but Elisha. In 2 Kings chapter 6, there's a story that is told, very, very true, happened in history, happened in time. The king of Syria is warring against the king of Israel, but he is troubled. He's even frustrated. Seems that every time he sends his army out, either he's defeated by Israel or Israel escapes his grasp. He calls all of his wise men together, his servants. And he goes, okay, guys, who's leaking the information? Every time I turn around, I'm defeated. One of the servants goes, but, but king, none of us. They got Elijah, the prophet. You see, every time you speak in your bedroom, he knows it. And he tells the king of Israel. Well, this just flabbergasts the king of Syria. He, he says, I can't, I can't believe this. He goes, you got to find me this guy and you got to bring him back. And, and one of the other servants says, well, I hear he's in Dotham. So the king of Syria sends a huge army, a huge army after one man. They go to Dotham in the night and they surround the whole thing. Now, Elisha has a servant that works alongside of him, kind of carries things and does things for him. And so this servant gets up in the morning, he goes outside and there's an army. And he's like, oh my gosh. He goes back, Elijah, they're all over this army. They're going to get us. Elijah says, don't be afraid. Greater are those who are with us than those with them. And then he prays. 
He says, Lord, open his eyes so he can see. And all of a sudden, like scales come off his eyes. He's like, oh, wow. Look at all of them. All these horses and chariots and angels on fire. All of a sudden, he's very, very confident that the battle's going to go their way. But no sword is drawn. Elijah prays again and he says, Lord, blind the Syrians. And they become blind. And then he just marches them to Samaria. They're captured over. That's the kind of thing that happens behind the scenes. That is how God works. And that is how God is working today. And that's how he worked during the birth of Christ, behind the scenes. Abraham Kuyper, a Dutch theologian, and once the prime minister of the Netherlands, he wrote this. He says, if once the curtain were pulled back and the spiritual world behind it came to view, it would expose to our spiritual vision a struggle so intense, so convulsive, sweeping everything within its range that even the fiercest battle ever fought on earth would seem by comparison a mere game. A mere game. God is working to this day and He worked before the birth of Christ, during the work of Christ, birth of Christ, and still to this day. So Luke opens this birth narrative and we're going to walk through this narrative in terms of the decree, the journey, the birth, the proclamation, and then to the glory of God. As I said, he is both historical and theological Luke. He's telling this story and he begins with Caesar. It's the story of a man who became emperor, king of the known world, and thought of himself as a savior and longed to be a god with a little g. It also tells the story of the God of the universe, the very creator of all things out of nothing, who became man and invaded the earth to truly save the world from sin and bring peace. Luke tells us the king has come. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that the world should be registered and all went to be registered, each to his own town. It was a golden age of peace. The Pax Romana. Caesar Augustus brought this in, ushered it in himself in 27 BC. You see, Julius Caesar had been assassinated years before, and the kingdom was divided up into three parts. Some of it was given to Antony, you know, Antony and Cleopatra. Another third was given to Lepidus. And finally, the third to his adopted son, if you will, Octavian. Octavian consolidated things. Lepidus was exiled, and he defeated Antony and Cleopatra. Cleopatra at Actium in 31 BC and all of this came together under him. 
It would be a golden age that would last for four more Caesars after him until 180 A.D. But it was a peace that was a false peace. It was a peace that was, that was gotten by the sword, that was held by the sword. But there was no peace for men, no peace with God. No lasting peace. Augustus was so powerful that he achieved godlike status. In some parts of the Roman Empire, there was even inscriptions that hailed Caesar Augustus. In Greece, there is a marble slab that was found now in the British Museum that says Caesar Augustus, quote, Savior of the world, unquote. This decree that Luke speaks of, according to Richard Phillips, was caused by a simple dispute between Augustus and Herod, king of Judea. Why is that important? There's this little spat between a big king and a little king. Caesar Augustus was one not to be trifled with, not to be trusted He'd kill you as soon as, as as much as he would look at you. And so Herod did something he didn't like. And so Augustus takes action. He's going to put Herod in his place, and so he decides that there's going to be a census, a registration for the purpose of taxation. You see, what this did is it tightened his grip on his subjects and his kingdom. And also, Herod in this case. Taxing was a way of saying, this province belongs to me. And so he was saying to Herod, even your province belongs to me, not to you. I'm the sovereign, not you. The irony is that the true sovereign is working behind the scenes even in this. This event, this action... This decree would spread throughout all the known world. Caesar at that time controlled Spain and modern day Europe and the Middle East and North Africa. All the civilization around the Mediterranean Sea, as far as you can see. Kent Hughes says that Octavian's relentless stretched arm squeezed out its tribute even to a tiny village at the far end of the Mediterranean. We see power like this even today. We shouldn't be surprised. But behind this history, this power play by Augustus Octavian, God was working. The theology behind the curtain. Caesar thought he was wielding his power, tightening his grip. But as I I said, there's an irony to this. He unknowingly unleashed a chain of events that would turn the world upside down because through all the millions that would have had to go back to their hometown, two in particular would have to do so, Joseph and Mary. They would have to travel from Nazareth in Galilee to Bethlehem, some 100 miles away to register for tax. Why? Because Joseph was of the lineage of David.
Well, these are the facts. Augustus did this, but there is the other side, the spiritual side, God moving, as I said. Paul says in Ephesians that he does everything according to the counsel of his own will. That includes fulfilling the story of redemption. As I mentioned weeks ago, that would be a fulfillment of Genesis 3.15, the crushing of the serpent's head. It would be a fulfillment of the promise made to Abraham, not only in Genesis chapter 12, but at Genesis chapter 15 and 17 and what Pastor Jake spoke on in chapter 22. It would fulfill the promise given to David that his offspring, one of his offspring, would establish his throne and sit on it forever. And it would establish the fulfillment of Micah 5 that the Christ, the ruler of Israel, would be born in Bethlehem. God was using Caesar Augustus. And he did so through his sovereignty and through his providence. Proverbs 21.1 says this, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hands of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. He turned the heart of Caesar to provoke arrogance within him that he would put forth a decree against whom he thought was a lesser vassal. When in reality, it was simply to move Joseph and Mary to Bethlehem. What wonder of wonders. This leads into the journey. The journey that would be taken place by Mary and Joseph. As I mentioned earlier, some 100 miles or so. It depends on which way you're going. There was mountains in the way and some things were around it. As a crow flies, it's about 80 miles from Nazareth to Bethlehem. Think about it for just a moment. You don't get this through the text. But Mary is with child. Can you imagine being in the last month of your pregnancy? Those women who have had children or those who are expecting now You're going to have to walk, or maybe even worse, ride on the back of a donkey some 80 miles to a place that you don't recognize. It's not your home. You have to be thinking in the back of your mind, what if my water breaks? What what am I going to do? But I think Mary at this point has vivid memories within her mind. And I'll get to those in just a moment. So they leave Galilee, they leave Nazareth, and they head to the city of David. There is a destiny for them to fulfill. And God's theology comes out through this. God is preserving them. God is strengthening them to persevere. And as I said, Mary's having all these images, these memories probably flooding through her mind. That of Gabriel that came, the angel that said, you're going to have a child. And he would be the king of Israel. She goes, how can this be? And then he tells her that your aunt, Elizabeth, 
also is with child. She's in her sixth month. She goes to Elizabeth. And the baby John leaps within her room. And she prophesies. So she's had the testimony of Gabriel, the angel of the Lord. Has the testimony of Israel, of Elizabeth. And then Zechariah, the father of John. She had to be there for the birth of John. And there he is prophesying of what's going to take place. So with every step, with every beat of Mary's heart toward Bethlehem, she's no, she knows she is doing the will of the sovereign God of the universe to bring forth His Son. Why? Bringing Him forth for you and for me. It would have been hard. A hard, hard trip. But Mary, like Jesus in His latter days, that set His face towards Jerusalem, even when He was going to the cross, she set her sights toward Bethlehem. This teaches us God's preserving and His perseverance. We also see God's sovereignty throughout this story. Not only the major things, the decree, but even in the little things, the ordinary, everyday life events. God is working in His people in spite of the things we have to do, even if it's moving to another town. The journey would have left Mary exhausted. Joseph, being from Bethlehem, must have had family, but they didn't have any place for him. Our text tells us by Luke that there was no room for them in the inn. We like to think of the nativity as something nice, neat, and clean. Kind of in a hallmark kind of a way. No room at the inn, no problem. We'll just go to this nice little barn next door. It's nice, warm, and cozy. There's even a little trough there that's just right size for a cradle for a baby. That's not what this is. That is not at all what this is. It, what this is. Paul says that Jesus left heaven in Philippians chapter 2 and humbled himself. Even from the beginning, it was a humble beginning. This was no nice little stall. Justin Martyr was born in 100 AD, 2nd century. They say that he knew much about the Apostle John who probably wrote Revelation in 90 AD or so. So he was just on the cusp of the Apostles. He wrote when he was speaking in his writing Dialogue with Trofo that, quote, since Joseph had nowhere to lodge in the village, he lodged in a certain cave near the village. And while they were there, Mary brought forth the Messiah and laid him in a manger. This was a common practice to use caves near Bethlehem as stalls for sheep. The reality is this kind of place is the last place that any girl would want to have a child. Remember, Mary's just a teenager. Her mom's not there. The only help she has is Joseph. 
So they do what they have to do. They go to perhaps this cave. And Kent Hughes says this, Imagine this birth, the way that Jesus, the Son of God, would come into the world. Kent Hughes puts it this way vividly. If we imagine that Jesus was born in a freshly swept country fair stable, we miss the whole point. It was wretched. It was scandalous. There was sweat and pain and blood and cries as Mary reached up to the heavens for help. The earth was cold and it was hard. The smell of birth mixed with the stench of manure and a pungent straw made a contemptible bouquet. Trembling carpenter's hands, clumsy with fear, grasped for God's son, slippery with blood. The baby's limbs were waving helplessly as if falling through space. His face grimaced as he gasped in the cold air and his cry pierced the night. That's how your Savior, or like that, is how your Savior came into the world. Through great humiliation. But what love that speaks of Christ for you. How your king would become a pauper in poverty. What a great love. At Christmas time, we did last night at the Christmas Eve service, we sang Silent Night, but there's an aspect to this is it wasn't that silent. There was the cries of Mary given in her birth pangs, the cry of the baby, Jesus, when he came forth. Andrew Peterson wrote a song called Labor of Love. Let me read this lyric to you. It was not a silent night. There was blood on the ground. You could hear a woman cry in the alleyways that night on the streets of David's town. And the stable was not clean. And the cobblestones were cold. And little Mary, full of grace, with tears upon her face, had no mother's hand to hold. It was a labor of pain. It was a cold sky above. But the girl on the ground in the dark, with every beat of her beautiful heart, it was a labor of love. This is the incarnation. This is the King of Kings, coming down from heaven to become man. It is a royal birth. But what kind of welcome did the King of Kings receive? In Bethlehem, that little village, he received none. If you think about it, when royalty is born, there is a huge fanfare. In November of 1948, Princess Elizabeth, then Princess Elizabeth, was to become Queen Elizabeth, gave birth to her first child, Charles, who is now King of England. When he was born, a radio announcement went out, not just from one station, but across all stations. That would be like something being posted on the internet and going viral. The headlines were on every front page of the free world. The prince is born. 
There was a framed declaration posted outside the gate of Buckingham Palace. The British military lined up cannons and gave a cannon salute. A throng of people stood outside the palace just waiting for a glimpse of Elizabeth holding Charles, the prince. But for the Son of God, there was no such welcome. Philip Rackin says, to understand the weightiness of this indignity toward our Lord, we need to be reminded of who Jesus is. Who is He? Scripture tells us, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things and He holds all things together. The author of Hebrews says he's the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Jesus himself says in Revelation, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Jesus deserved to be welcomed. He deserved to be worshipped. By every creature created, from the birds of the air to the fish of the sea to the beast of the field and every creeping thing down to the tiniest of insects. He deserved to be worshipped by creation itself. The Psalms go on at infinitum talking about how the rocks will cry out, how the seas roar, how the rivers clap their hands in celebration of the Lord. He also deserved to be worshipped by every people of every nation, tribe, and tongue. But there was no welcome. Everything that we know about the birth and that the scriptures say about Jesus points to obscurity, indignity, pain, and rejection. But not for those who believe. We receive him with glad hearts. We rejoice in our Savior. We worship Him knowing the lengths that He has gone to to deliver us, to forgive us, to make us united with Him. Jesus is theological. What is He trying to show us through all of what I've had to say so far? Our need our depravity of sin, how much it separates us from Him, the need for that chasm to be brought together. Some did look forward to the Messiah's coming, but most were preoccupied with everything in their own little worlds, unaware of what God was doing in the world. When the true King came, His birth was relatively unnoticed. John tells us that he came to his own as his own received him not. But Jesus came nonetheless to save his people from their sins, to come through his birth and invade the earth as an army of one. 
to defeat Satan and sin and bring us to Himself. Just like Joseph and Mary reached Bethlehem and no one received Him, no one made room for them. There was no room in the inn. So too, throughout life and ministry, Jesus would be rejected, reviled. No room would be made for Him. We hear this kind of talk and we might become indignant or outraged. How could they do that? With all that we know from the Scriptures, how could they neglect the coming of Jesus? Well, let's be honest for a moment. What kind of welcome do we give Jesus right now? Have you made room for Him in your heart? Coming to Him by faith? Are you making room for Him in the morning? Reading His Word? Hearing from Him and speaking to Him in prayer? Do you make room for Him in your daily lives, in your work, your school, and in your home? Or do you push Him aside? Are you like Caesar and you want all that you can get? You want all the presents of Christmas, but not Christ. A man once wrote this, What the inhabitants of Bethlehem did in their ignorance is done by many today in willful indifference. They've refused to make room for the Son of God. They give no place to Him for their feelings, their affections, their thoughts, their views of life, their wishes, their decisions, their actions, and their daily conduct. This is what the nativity is for. It is to show us this sinfulness and to show us the grace and love and mercy of God that comes with the child that was born. That shows forth His infinite grace, His desire to be our Savior. The second reason, thing that this... Nativity shows us is the sheer humanity of Christ. And then this is the important part. He had to be man to represent to us. And He had to be God to represent us. Jesus was fully man. He had ears, a mouth, eyes, nose, stomach, hands, feet, fingers, and toes. He didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being in the likeness of men. Charles Spurgeon said that the Son of God disrobed himself and set aside his glory to take on a robe of flesh and blood and bone to be like you and to be like me. Well, what Welcome was there? Not much. But there was a proclamation that was made. He came and was announced, not to the powerful like Caesar Augustus, not to the wise and not to the noble. He was first announced to shepherds. And there's a theological reason behind this as well. You see, shepherds in Israel were outcasts. 
They were seen as being unclean. They were viewed as liars and thieves. Their witness was not admissible in a court of law. They were considered the lowest of classes with the exception of lepers. But that's who the announcement was made. The angel of the Lord, our text says, appeared to them and they were afraid and the angel said, Fear not, for I bring you good tidings of great joy. He brought them the good news. He brought them the gospel. Jesus Christ has been born. Why? Because that's who Jesus comes to save. The poor, the outcast, the sinner. We should rejoice that He came for us. This is good news. This is great news that Jesus has come. It's also great news that He is like us. For the author of Hebrews says that we do not have a high priest that is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. This is the one worth making room for. This is the Savior worth receiving. And with that proclamation, the shepherds rejoiced to the glory of God. This passage closes with suddenly the angels, as if the curtain is pulled back once more that we could see like the servant of Elisha outside of Dotham, a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God in the highest. For now, true peace, not with a sword, but through a sacrifice has come to those whom He is well pleased, to sinners chosen before the foundation of the world. This is worth praising God. This is worth doxology. It's a fantastic gift. It's an unimaginable grace. It's an incredible act of mercy. It is an infinite expression of love. How can we not sing with the angels? Praising God for the newborn King. This Jesus came in a borrowed manger and was buried in a borrowed tomb. He was wrapped at his birth in swaddling clothes and he is wrapped in a burial shroud in the tomb. But God raised him from the dead. Praise God. Jesus was rejected at his birth and rejected at his crucifixion. But his sacrifice was accepted on our behalf by the Father for us. He came in humility, poverty, insignificance, And that's how we receive Him, with humility, with poverty of spirit, knowing our unworthiness. In mercy and grace, He came from heaven above to forgive us of sin and grant us life eternal. He set aside His glory that we might have the hope of glory, Christ in us. 
Hallelujah, what a wonderful birth. Hallelujah, what a wonderful gift. If you know him, make room for him this Christmas morning. But if you don't, there's one more gift for you to receive. Receive the Lord Jesus Christ by faith. And you will receive the greatest gift the world has ever known. Jesus himself, which grants forgiveness of sin and life everlasting. Let us pray. Father, we do rejoice this Christmas morn that you would send forth your Son. And through all the travail of it, it was a glorious thing. And it is a glorious thing that he came to take our place that we might have life everlasting. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.